This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the state is facing a lawsuit over the reopening of public schools. Maybe we went back too early. Maybe we were reckless with beaches. Maybe we were reckless with bars. Maybe we were reckless with restaurants, but we cannot be reckless with public schools. We cannot be reckless with children's lives. The Florida Education Association says no one should be forced to return to schools until the COVID crisis is under control, and it's not. The state reported 92 new fatalities Monday and more than 10,000 newly confirmed cases of coronavirus. The governor travels to Orlando to ask COVID survivors to donate blood that could be used to treat other victims, and once again he's confronted by protesters interrupting his spiel. If you had been, in, if you had been infected, then you. If you listen closely, you can hear them say, shame on you, and you're lying to the public. This is the second time in eight days the governor's been heckled at a press conference. Both happened on a Monday. Maybe Garfield was right. A group that represents nursing homes and senior care facilities says the COVID crisis has them hurtling toward a financial cliff, and they're calling on Congress for a bailout. If the coronavirus in Florida were a hurricane, its intensity in the last two weeks has reached Category 5 status, with record numbers of Floridians affected each passing day. Today on Sunrise, we go in-depth on a settlement between the state and a coalition of liberal voting groups that were trying to force Florida to make it easier to vote by mail during the COVID crisis. Florida's response to the coronavirus has been woefully inadequate. We do not want the second pandemic to be the disenfranchisement of hundreds of thousands of voters in August and November. We'll also have your calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man sent to jail for stealing $2 million from a small school district in Texas. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Tuesday, July 21st. The Florida Education Association is suing the state, claiming the rush to reopen schools is unconstitutional and deadly. FEA President Frederick Ingram says teachers want to go back to the classroom, but only when it's safe. We want to be in school. Our teachers want to be in school, our cafeteria workers, our bus drivers, our secretaries, we want to be in school. We want to teach. Given the circumstances, Florida is in the vortex. Our state government, starting with our governor, has not gotten this virus under control. Maybe we went back too early. Maybe we were reckless with beaches. Maybe we were reckless with bars. Maybe we were reckless with restaurants, but we cannot be reckless with public schools. We cannot be reckless with children's lives. We cannot be reckless with those who pour their souls into these kids every day. That's unfair. That is an unfair way of thinking. That is an unfair way of treating people who simply want to care about our kids. Our public schools are opportunities and vessels of hope. We have to have faith that they're gonna be safe and secure and that they can be attained by each and every kid. And this lawsuit, unfortunately, is being brought on behalf of those kids on behalf of those teachers, on behalf of those educational support professionals, and all of the folks who pour into these kids. And it is shameful in the state of Florida that it has to result to a lawsuit when we should be getting our classes together, doing lesson plans, doing pre-planning, going to professional developments, and encouraging our colleagues, hey, this is going to be a bigger, better year than it was last year. Shameful that our governor has to get to this point that we have not given the thought process and the comprehensive levels of thought that it takes to open our public schools here in Florida. We do not want to be the petri dish for the nation. We will not experiment 
on our classrooms to see if it is going to be a super spreader event or not. We are not going to stand for that, and we're not going to back down to a governor, to a commissioner of education, nor will we back down to the president of the United States or Betsy DeVos. It's not just Florida. National Education Association President Lily Garcia says states all across the country are rushing to reopen before they are ready. It's just eerie what we're hearing on the state level and the what we've been hearing on the national level. The command of Governor DeSantis to reopen all Florida schools before it's safe is reckless, it's unreasonable, it's unnecessary, and it is a false choice to either keep schools closed, stop learning, or open them unsafely. This order that just mimics Betsy DeVos and a federal edict, you will open all schools all day, all week, all students sitting shoulder to shoulder, no matter what doctors say. That's asking us to sacrifice our students and their families, educators and their families. Why all this hurry without a plan to keep people safe? It makes no sense at all. We're, we're teachers, we're educators, we want our kids back. We do not like teaching on a video call. It is not fun, but this isn't about fun. It's that we want to open schools safely. And it also is because we don't want to make the pandemic worse. If you do this wrong, the school becomes the germ factory. It becomes the super spreader. It becomes the source of a new surge in your community. And we know which communities are going to be hit the hardest. Black communities, Latino communities have been devastated by this horrible pandemic because they are too often and shamelessly our poorest communities. Schools in our poorest communities shamefully have been so underfunded that they are more likely to be overcrowded, to have poor ventilation systems. They'll have less money for disinfectant, for face masks. They won't have a school nurse for all those health screenings, all the things that the Centers for Disease Control say that you have to have. If you're going to open a restaurant safely, let alone an elementary school, Kendall Coffey is the lead attorney for the teachers' union, and he says their lawsuit makes three fundamental claims against the state. All of us know just how extreme the facts are. The first 21 pages of our lawsuit are a chronicle of horrors. They are, tragically, a chronicle of undeniable truth. We talk in terms of three legal theories. The first, expressed most simply, is the constitutional right in Florida for students to have a safe and secure educational home. And that is not available under the science, under the evidence, under federal criteria. That simply is not available yet. And until it is, it would be, and we think we're very solid on this, a constitutional violation. The second claim goes to the order itself, which is first of all confusing. I suspect I'm not the only one that found it confusing. And you think about the importance of something like this being so clear, and yet it is not. And that is a constitutional violation. Fundamentally, it is considered arbitrary and capricious and irrational because it is not based on solid information and evidence. A decision maker has to have a reasonable basis for decision making. In this case, 
the emergency order completely ignores the CDC criteria, doesn't even try to explain them, and that is a constitutional violation. And most significantly, it ignores the information in its own files. Information as recently as May 28 that emphasize that schools are high contact settings. They're not set up for social distancing. And therefore, reopening has to be a locally driven uh, decision. And there have to be local safe school plans. And there have to be local response teams, local partnerships, with all of the recognition by the Department of Education in its own files and in its own information. This needs to be locally driven. It threw all that to the side and said that they are now going to be a state uh, authority which pushes locals out of the way. We need an injunction to prevent this from happening before it's too late. Because if students or teachers and educators and workers in education are rushed back into school without the safety precautions in place, the damage that's done will be irreparable and potentially, in many cases, fatal. One of the plaintiffs in this case is a Broward County teacher by the name of Stephanie Beth Miller. COVID almost killed her, and she doesn't want to give it another chance. I was getting over a flu and was asthmatic when COVID broke out. So by the end of March, I caught COVID. 21 days on a ventilator, two months in the hospital, eight days in rehab, and now I've been home for six weeks getting physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy daily. It's a long journey. I don't wish this on anyone. I, of course, want to go back to teaching, but it needs to be safe. There's no way that children could sit in their seat for six hours wearing a mask and not feel the stress of this situation. Teaching online is not optimal, but it's best to keep teachers, personnel, families safe. I have a long road ahead of me, but I'm determined to get better. And my, my reason for doing this is to protect our young and to protect other teachers and people that work in the school. Miller isn't the only teacher who has her doubts. FEA's president says 39% of the teachers they surveyed said they are considering retirement or leaving the profession if they are forced to return to the classroom before it's safe. Hecklers crash another press conference by the governor. Ron DeSantis was in Orlando Monday at the headquarters of One Blood, a nonprofit that operates blood donation centers throughout the state. The governor was there to ask people who've recovered from COVID-19 to donate blood that can be used to treat victims of the disease. And the hecklers were standing by to accuse him of lying to the public. One of the treatments that uh, many physicians around the state believe is very effective is the use of convalescent plasma. So this is blood that's donated from somebody who has cleared the, the COVID-19 uh, disease. It has the antibodies, and then that is then used uh, on a patient who is sick in the hospital. So if you're somebody that thinks that you may have been infected in the past, uh, you can go, it is a blood draw, but you get a result in 15 minutes. And we've also advised folks who uh, aren't experiencing any COVID symptoms. You know, uh, most of the people that go to our drive-through sites uh, don't have any symptoms. They think, well, I'm curious, maybe I was exposed. Um, and then they get a PCR diagnostic test and that's fine and that's available. Uh, but if you're in those situations, doing an antibody test may be a better option because if you had been- if you had been infected, 
then you. The shouting went on for less than a minute as the hecklers were escorted outside by law enforcement. Then they stood outside pounding on the glass for most of the press conference. One bank's CEO quipped that he hopes the demonstrators never need convalescent plasma. So what was the governor's response? Well, basically misdirection. Instead of responding to the charge that he's lying, DeSantis acted as if this was a Black Lives Matter protest. And we will not be defunding the police, so don't worry about that. We're going to be supporting our men and women in law enforcement. Um, but what you have with the convalescent plasma is an ability to be able to, to help folks who are doing it. So if you go into a drive-through testing site and you want to do an antibody test, you will actually be able to see if you've had a recent infection, if you get a certain type of antibody. And then if you get the IgG antibody, you're going to be able to be in a situation uh, where you know that you've cleared the illness uh, probably for several weeks. What you heard in the background was the sound of protesters pounding on the glass outside the room. This turned out to be one of the shortest press conferences since the governor began doing COVID updates back in March. A group that represents nursing homes and adult care centers is calling on Congress for a targeted bailout. Katie Smith Sloan, the president and CEO of Leading Age, says what lawmakers do in the next few weeks will determine life and death of many of our nation's most vulnerable older adults. Steve Bamer is the CEO of Leading Edge Florida, and he says they're hurting. Over the last two weeks, Florida has become the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're averaging more than 11,000 new cases each day. And following just this last weekend's testing, more than 350,000 Floridians have tested positive for the coronavirus, and nearly 5,000 residents, Florida residents, have died. If the coronavirus in Florida were a hurricane, its intensity in the last two weeks has reached Category 5 status, with record numbers of Floridians affected each passing day. Among those most harshly impacted have been Florida's seniors and the long-term care workers who care for them. Nearly 2,400 long-term care residents and staff have died as a result of the virus, or just under 50% of all coronavirus-related deaths in the state. Like a hurricane, this much was predictable. We've known for months that seniors in long-term care settings were at the greatest risk from the virus, not because of any failure on the part of providers, but because older adults living together in these settings tend to have underlying conditions that make them more susceptible. But the storm is here. It's gathering intensity, and it's putting enormous pressure on the providers who care for Florida's most vulnerable citizens. Dramatically increased expenses related to enhanced cleaning requirements, screenings of all employees, testing of residents, very much deserved hero pay for their staff, increased overtime, staff replacement costs, and sharp increases in PPE usage and cost are simply unsustainable. Our members report predicted operating losses as high as $3 million per month across one system if conditions don't change soon. And although state resources have been extremely helpful in ensuring that all long-term care staff are routinely tested, we don't know what comes next if the state-funded testing ends in September. What we do know is that our members estimate costs between $25,000 and $300,000 per month for ongoing staff testing. Meanwhile, there's been no relief for the heroic staff who care for seniors, and their fatigue is both understandable and clear.
Boehmer says they need more federal assistance, but the feds are not the most reliable source. Jay Solomon runs Aviva, Sarasota's only nonprofit senior rental community, and he says the personal protective gear supplied by FEMA was worthless. The PPE that we received from FEMA, to give you an idea, the gowns that we got were more like garbage bags and did not provide the necessary infection control that was necessary that we felt comfortable. The, uh, the masks that were provided, as somebody on staff said, it reminded them as if they were playing with paper dolls because that's how flimsy they were and really would not protect anybody. So they were truly substandard and inferior that we did not feel comfortable utilizing those FEMA uh, PPE supplies that we got. Steve Bamer with Leading Edge says they hear the same complaints from senior care facilities all across the country. In addition to what Jay has described, we've consistently heard that the, the, FEMA, the FEMA shipments of PPE were substandard and, and frankly unusable. Um, we also know of experiences with members who never actually received a single shipment of PPE from FEMA. So in some cases they didn't arrive and in many cases when they did they were useless. Uh, and of course that's why uh, the action in Congress and our, our ask of our senators here in Florida uh, is so critical. Those dollars are necessary to make sure providers have PPE that is uh, above standard and sufficient for helping make sure that residents and staff stay safe. Leading Age Florida sent a letter to Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott urging them to take the lead on a robust funding and relief package that will, quote, protect the lives of vulnerable older adults during the worst pandemic in the century. On the eve of the trial, a federal lawsuit challenging Florida's vote-by-mail system is settled out of court, and Republicans are claiming victory. But is it really? That's next, as we take a deep dive into voting by mail. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast, and we are much obliged. The Florida Hospital Association has released the OPEN Plan, designed to allow Florida's safe resumption of elective surgeries and procedures. OPEN stands for O, observe the COVID-19 rate of community occurrence. P, prevent transmission. E, establish the process to restore elective surgeries and procedures, and N, network with all healthcare providers. You can read the open plan today at fha.org. Welcome back to Sunrise. As the state was gearing up for the presidential preference primary back in March, liberal voting groups, including Priorities USA and the Dream Defenders, sued the governor and the secretary of state to try to force them to expand voting options for people during the pandemic. The trial was supposed to begin Monday, but they settled out of court at the last minute. That agreement requires Secretary of State Laurel Lee to educate and encourage county election supervisors about a variety of vote-by-mail procedures that were at the heart of the lawsuit. They did not get what they wanted, but Judith Brown Dianis with the Advancement Project says the settlement is a start. As voting rights experts, advocates, and organizers, we knew that without changes to Florida's election system, thousands of Floridians would be forced to choose between casting a ballot or catching a virus. The immunocompromised, the poor, students, and voters of color would be disenfranchised by the state's upcoming elections. We were determined to prevent this from happening. This settlement is a clear victory and a step forward for Black and Latinx voters, as well as all Floridians. Florida has finally done one thing right, 
about the COVID crisis. Florida is settling this case. As a result of our lawsuit, Florida went from doing nothing to committing to educating and encouraging all 67 supervisors of elections to expand access to democracy in this historic 2020 presidential election cycle. The settlement imposes legal requirements on the state to engage in robust voter education on vote by mail, early in-person in voting, and voter registration. Today, we are happy to announce that we have won some encouraging changes for voters, but we know the fight for the right to vote continues and that advocacy with the supervisors of elections will be key to ensuring every voter will have a right to cast a ballot in a free, fair, and safe election without risking their health. Monet Holder with the New Florida Majority says they filed the original lawsuit for the primary back during the early days of the pandemic, and she believes it's more important now than ever. It is a fact that Florida's response to the coronavirus has been woefully inadequate. We do not want the second pandemic to be the disenfranchisement of hundreds of thousands of voters in August and November. COVID-19 has stopped us from doing face-to-face -face voter engagement and meeting people where they are. The pandemic essentially screeched our voter registration field work to a halt. With COVID-19, polling locations are shifting. Voters are concerned about wait times and what protective measures are being taken to keep voters safe at polling locations. And they do not want to choose between their health and participating in democracy. We also know that voters fundamentally do not have faith in the online voter registration system. The digital divide that we are in prevents many people without regular access to the internet from accessing the online system during the pandemic when libraries and other public facilities are closed. We know that voters need a clear plan from the state on how they will run the upcoming elections, and they need it in a way that ensures they will be safe and won't be disenfranchised due to no fault of their own. Andrea McCarter with New Florida Majority admits there's a lot they did not get in that settlement, so the push to expand voting rights will continue in other ways. There's clearly still so much work to be done to um, protect democracy in this historic election year. Um, and we will be out there registering voters, educating voters um, on how to cast their ballot, how to the importance of making their voices heard. Um, and, you know, I think this settlement is an important step forward, but it's clearly not everything um, that we believe needs to be done to protect democracy in our state. And we will continue pushing forward for the critical August primary elections, um, and then again in November. Kira Romero-Craft is a managing attorney for the group called Latino Justice, and she says the next step is to start lobbying local election supervisors to offer more early voting days. So one of the core advocacy pieces that we continue to press on is that, you know, voters ask for early voting to the fullest extent of the law. That is something that's going to be critically important moving forward. We want to see all Florida supervisors of elections, regardless of what they believe it might look like. Florida, we can't discount how devastated the state is and continues to be uh, in the face of, of COVID-19. I mean, it is it is the epicenter right now, and and that doesn't look like it's abating. And uh, that's going to that's gonna really change the landscape. And I think one of the things that Florida obviously wants to avoid is being in the news again for getting election administration wrong and for having long lines and having voters expose themselves in that way. So, so now it's, it's up, you know, up to the voters to go ahead, contact your supervisor of elections, ask for an extension of early voting, make your plans in advance, 
request a vote by mail ballot if that's how you choose that you want you want to vote you plan on it and um, and so one of that's that's a key element to make sure that early voting is extended across the state to the fullest extent of the law um, which now it's 14 days prior to election day the republican party of florida and the state chairman joe gruders declared victory after the settlement agreement was announced we'll find out in november if it really was Your calendar of events begins at 8 with a meeting of the Miami-Dade College Board of Trustees. The South Florida Water Management District will hold an online workshop at 9 about a Lake Okeechobee watershed protection plan. The Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 9 to analyze issues relating to unclaimed property. A task force working on plans to extend the Suncoast Parkway to the Georgia border will start an online meeting at 9.30. The State University System's Board of Governors will hold committee meetings at 1, followed by a full board meeting at 4.35. Among the issues to be discussed is the reappointment of Mark Rosenberg as president of Florida International University. The Florida Talent Development Council meets remotely at 2, the Santa Fe College Board of Trustees meets at 4, and the University of Florida Board of Trustees meets remotely at 5. Finally today, it's time to check in with a Florida man who's now serving six years in a Texas prison for stealing $2 million from their schools. Two years ago, an employee at a small school district near Fort Worth received an email requesting payment for a school construction project. It was a BEC scheme, Business Email Compromise, and the crooks funneled the money through an account owned by Donald Conkright of Big Pine Key before it was moved overseas. Prosecutors say Conkright acted as a mule for the scammers. He was convicted of money laundering in March and was sentenced to almost six years in the pen last month, which he has now begun serving. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.